no hospice at all on the north side. What about exploring the possibility of a small hospice? And uh, we did, because we began to make quite, but then also, if we're going to look at what is involved in a hospice, so in, I think it was 1985, Sister Annette and Sister Dorothy went over to Manchester and London, and uh, they visited hospices, including St. Christopher, and met the famous James Cecily Saunders, and they learned a huge amount. It's great that they had that experience because they saw the best. This year marks the 30th anniversary of St. Francis Hospice. My name is Valerie Vetter and I'm one of its many volunteers. The voice you've just heard belongs to Sister Bernadette McMahon. She's one of the original founders of St. Francis. This program shares the story of how it all began from those who helped build this very special organisation. Um, my name is Fintan Fagan. I'm the CEO of St. Francis Hospice in Dublin with hospices in Rohini and Blanchestown. This year we celebrate 30 years of our service to the North Dublin community and it is only through the support of our wider community that we've been able to deliver the service over the last 30 years. We have a wonderful group of staff, over 240 staff, and we have over 300 volunteers who do a variety of roles from driving to bereavement support to hospitality. And the hospice is very much of the community and as a voluntary organisation, St Francis Hospice uh, has the flexibility to respond to the needs of the community and with the support from the community. Well, 30 years ago we started with uh, a port cabin and we were delivering a community palliative care service to the area surrounding Rohini. We've now spread to the entire North Dublin area with two hospices, one in Rohini and one in Blanchetown. And we look after over 1,700 patients and their families each year from our hospices in, in Blanchetown and Rohini and also from the community and people's homes. So over 1,300 people a year are looked after in their homes. And we like to provide a range of services to people so people can avail of our outpatient service, our daycare service, um, our community palliative care service and our inpatient service. And that is all aspects. We look after the patient and the family themselves as well. So we deal with the sort of the physical needs of the patient and the medical needs of the patient and we also deal with the psychosocial needs of the family and we like to feel that this is perhaps the one time in your life where all your needs are looked after. So the hospice services are provided at no charge to uh, patients or family and we get a combination of uh, funding from the HSE but we're very dependent on fundraising from the community. Um, so we raise over four and a half million euro per annum from a variety of events, including our coffee morning and including Sunflower Day and Mini Marathon, but also individuals and families run a, an amazing amount of events from tractor pulls to runs to people uh, uh, climbing mountains and all of that community support results in us being able to deliver our, our values-based care to patients and family and we like to, to believe that patients experience dignity and experience respect and compassion but we also realise that it takes great courage for you know patients and families to avail of our services whether that be in the community or in the hospice um, and we try and ensure that our staff and our volunteers you know help that fear and those worries disappear and their kindness ensure that patients and families feel secure and at home 
in what is a homely environment in, in both their hospices. One of its very first volunteers, Pat Breslin, recounts the launch of its services from a porta cabin on the grounds of the Capuchin Friary in Rohini. And I can remember we went out, now this was my husband and myself, we went out and we bought ham and we bought a salmon and we bought, I think it was roast beef. And we cooked it at home in my house. And then I baked. And in those days I used to bake a lot. And anyway, I did different things. And I did brown bread and that sort of stuff. And that was to launch, that was the launch yeah, of yeah. St. Francis Hospice. Mm. Well, more or less, <laughs> you know. So that's the very, very beginning. Oh, it was the very beginning. Anne Langan joined as a fundraising volunteer in the early days of St. Francis Hospice. We decided, oh gosh, it's probably 80, 88, when the land was handed over really at that stage, I think, by the friars. And then 89, we got a, a committee together to um, raise funds to see could we do anything. And how did you um, first get involved? My first involvement would have, with hospice would have been in Harold's Cross because my mother was diagnosed with um, brain tumour in 85 and they had recently started home care in Harold's Cross and she would have been one of their first patients home care, you know, because she wanted to stay at home. She didn't want to go to hospital. She had been in hospital for a couple of weeks and she didn't want to go back. And we were wondering how we were going to to keep her at home and manage, you know. And then uh, my brother said, there's a new service started in, in Hearts Cross. We were in Crumlin, so it's only stone's throw. And uh, so we made inquiries and they said yes. And they sent out the doctor and they sent out the nurses. And it was absolutely brilliant service. So that's where my first involvement with hospice. I always had it in my mind, gosh, you'd like to pay back for that because the service is so family orientated as well as patient orientated so I said gosh everybody really should have that service it shouldn't be a chosen few to say the least you know so we we decided then that um, I, when I moved then to uh, Rohini I was living in Rohini and I said gosh um, in the Friary met a whole lot of different people in the Friary for Mass and that and I met Pat Breslin and she said to me would you be interested in hospice and I said I certainly would and she said well we're having a meeting with the business people in Rohini and I said gosh that'd be brilliant so we met it was about 40 I think at the first meeting and um, it boiled down to about maybe 17 or 18 people that kind of said yeah we'd definitely do something Uh, and that's how the the Rohini support group started so uh, from that on we, we started coming up with ideas for raising funds and it ranged from everything you could ever imagine strolls down the coast cycles down the coast coffee mornings were the speciality (laughs) Uh, we'd auctions we'd you know everything that you could ever imagine as a fundraiser and we had a coffee morning every Saturday in the retreat house the old retreat house attached to the ferry and we'd spend hours baking scones Pat and Breed Stambridge, another lady, and myself. We'd make four dozen scones each, and we'd make about sixty pounds. And we used to say, you know, <laughs> if we'd be cheaper to put the sixty quid, twenty quid in each, 
than to be spending hours baking because we'd spent like maybe two hours baking these scones on the Saturday morning, you know. Um, we did the collections, of course, the sunflower collection in June and then the Christmas bell collection at usually the end of November, beginning of December. And uh, Dee and myself used to go into the ILEC Centre twice a year for, and in those times it was the Friday, the Thursday, Friday and Saturday, the late nights, the two late nights in, in things, and uh, we do from eight in the morning when you think that my oh, you'd say, you know. But again, people were extraordinarily generous, you know, like those those collections, we could have taken 50,000 out of the Island Centre in three days and those times, you know, yeah. And you'd see all human life passing you by in the Island Centre, you know, just incredible. And so did you ever get a surprise then with a donation, like out like that? Yes, yes, yes. From like, so you didn't match, really that, didn't match person that person with the donation at all, no. No, and you always got the same thing. Oh, I couldn't pass the hospice by. Oh no, they saw to my mom or they saw to my dad or my granny, my granddad, or my uncle. Always, you got very few people that didn't know. They they'd be passing, and they'd hear you saying hospice, and they say, "Oh, I have to go back." Oh, I couldn't pass the hospice. Original board member Joe Fallon shares his behind-the-scenes story of how St. Francis Hospice took shape. Well, my involvement in in the hospice goes back to uh, 1989 when I left my army job to become CEO of the Daughters of Charity Mental Handicap Services. Um, First lay person. Difficult time for the daughters, but Sister Bernadette McMahon was a supreme visionary and a supreme leader. And uh, I once, somebody asked me once to define leadership and I said it's the art of getting people to do things they ordinarily wouldn't wish to do. Anything else is management. But Bernadette had that special facility of, so she approached me sometime in maybe October of that year, still busy, and uh, she said, told me about this idea for a hospice. Uh, they already had moved in to the, the, the porter cabin in... in uh, the, the yard here of the of the friary in in um, Rahini. So I said, "What do you want me to do?" And she said, "If you kind of oversee administration and maybe development." What did you think when you heard? What did you think? I wasn't quite sure. I I wasn't quite sure. I had to tease it out a little with her. I she had me convinced before she started. You know, she she was that type, and. Uh, she was fantastic in that regard, and she appreciated that it was busy because it was obvious we were pretty busy over and the other with the main job, but it was on a voluntary basis. So as we got into October, November, December, then the structure began to appear. In other words, the establishment of a board. It was a limited company, and that impressed me as well that she didn't try to keep it within the Daughters of Charity. It was independent. And she told me about Dr. Mary Redmond and the vision that they had for a service on the north side of the, the Liffey for the, to cover the city and county of Dublin. That was the term that was used at the time. And uh, so I was, I was, you know, I said, OK. I had a, probably, my, I had lost my wife in 1983. She was 39. Yeah. And she was dead within six weeks. 
So I had a little, it was a, kind of said, okay, if there's something I can do, I'll do it. And so I agreed. And so then coming up to Christmas, she told me that the structure of the board, the new board, chaired by Justice Mellon Carnell, whom I knew of, but I'd never met the lady, and uh, <clears throat> that I w- asked me would I be a trustee. So I initially was a trustee with Sister Bernadette, Mary Redmond, Annette Mc- Sister Annette McKenna, Mary Redmond's husband, Patrick Usher, Dr. John Cooney. So that was the, they were the six original trustees. So the trustees then appointed the directors and there was a list of directors. So I was a director, as were the six trustees were also di- directors. Bar Patrick Usher was not uh, a director. He was Mary Redmond's husband. Uh, he was um, a lecturer in Trinity, I think. But we we uh, met the first week in January. It was miserable weather and that. And we used to meet in the Irish Hospice Foundation buildings and it was either in Fitzwilliam Square or Fitzwilliam Place I'm, I'm not quite sure now at this stage but we met in their offices because they were supportive of it Mary Redmond had established the Irish Hospice Foundation as well so we met in their offices and uh, it commenced the work I was it was a limited company under the Companies Act so I then Annette McKenna was the first company secretary so a week later she handed that over to me <laughs> Uh, and fair enough. So that that was that was the start of that, and almost immediately then we started the planning for. Um, you really hit the ground running. Then. Oh, whew, you, you, can, you know, it was it was incredible. Uh, but the two women, you know, they had they, the hospice was needed like now, and uh, you know the the uh, drive of of. Of Bernadette and I, I accepted the board included um, a number of medical people, Dr. Hugh Raftery, who's um, a, f- a fantastic support because we didn't have a consultant in here. There was a Dr. Jack McCarthy, uh, again, f- incredible, great man. We had a man called Des Pilo, an accountant, and from the outside, I was in, I was like I had said it to Bernadette that. A board should have um, representatives who would cover the key administrative and medical and nursing areas in any hospital, you know, in any organization. Whatever you're going to do, you need people. Not to catch the existing staff out, well, we didn't have existing staff at the time, but to support them and to understand the nuances of what was happening and she agreed with that so we had an accountant we had uh, an engineer and in that regard not in, not immediately we had uh, Tom McMahon who's still on the board phenomenal man consultant engineer uh, who gave, who still is giving incredible support to, to Francis Hospice so the idea as you can see now we had the medical we had uh, sister margaret cashman was a director at that stage she was the matron in st anne's northbrook road at that time and uh, so she was she was she wasn't worth with us she wasn't sister dorothy kieran was the 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 head woman out here in in Rahini, and she had a small team a small team of staff a small staff of home care Palliative care nurses Martina O'Dowd and Betty McDonnell share what their job was like 
Um, and when? I joined the 1st of May 1990 and Betty and I had worked in England together. Came originally as holiday relief because I'd worked because I knew Betty and we were friends. It was it was a, such an easy passage for me because she just walked me through really everything that that I needed to do and. And how did you find the job itself, like in working in palliative care? And well, you see, I had trained I had trained in palliative care with with Betty before that, so um, in the Morrison, and we were in the Morrison together. And what was your typical day like? Okay. Typical day would be we would meet. meet in the morning and we'd go through the patients on our list and we'd see who you know see who needed a visit and we would divide out the visits allocate the visits then among ourselves and um then go out with our charts and yeah, go and see our patients yeah, like we said Martina the different we did a 24-hour service Betty McDonnell was the first palliative care nurse hired by the brand new organization seven you days a week seven days a week and therefore you had we initially had a big talkie walkie phone and we had a bleep that went off, but you had to find a phone box to ring. The yeah. number came up. Yeah, yeah. So and this is 24 hours 24 a day. 24 hours yeah, so a day. Yeah. And did you have any idea, like, you know, the next patient? No, no, all exactly. different so backgrounds. Was going off, you know, and yeah, you responded yeah. to the calls. You'd have your set calls, and then you took everything else that came in. So it, it was yeah. busy. It was yeah. busy because you were on and your I own. I suppose they began to look at it then. One weekend I was on. And I had actually done 14 calls mm. in a day and done the night and that morning on my way to work when the patient who was uncontrolled went on my way down a Black Horse Avenue. I remember yeah. it very clearly that you came in after doing 14 visits the mm. day before and, poss- and awake with a bleep during the night yeah. and then did someone on your way to work and Martina yeah. and Pauline would have done the same thing, you know, mm. and then you intend and you might get finish early or you may not rarely did mm. but we didn't really advocate or ask about that you know I we just we're, expe- learning. We're, we're learning, learning. and we're building a yeah. service we were there for the patient at the same time I suppose then we were just in the age of life we're in our late 20s and we weren't we were just married or not married but we hadn't children so yeah. we gave you know, we had a, a good life, but like you, di- you weren't rushing home to children, so therefore you yeah. went on a call. Yeah, yeah. did so people was a lot understand of what hospice was? Or not really, no. And, and there would have been, I suppose, Lots it was a new much. service. So it was probably a little bit of, maybe a little bit of resistance. Not really, yeah. but we we were very we were very aware of our place in the community in the sense that we knew that to make it work, we had to forge it ahead, and we had to be. So we were always very, it's we were always very open to you know whatever we could do for them and. And what kind of questions would people ask you? It, w- it was always, you know, this fear of the hospice and death and don't tell him. And where now you'd say, well, if he asks, I'd tell. But I do remember a man asking me, and I had come like Martina from the bars, and it was a lot of things were more forward then and the stigma wasn't as and if somebody asked you about death you did broach it with them and I will never forget one patient asking me in the room and about you know and he was very terminal and he asked me in the room and I suppose I hadn't sussed out too much with the family or they hadn't opened up about it and he asked me you know is this going to kill me and I said, what do you think? And I think it is. And I agreed with them that it possibly would. And, you know, the repercussions for me of that was like the family rang in and complained and all of that, you know, not to use the word. And there was a, a lot of that in the early days of using the word hospice. And like, oh, I'm Betty from Rohini or, or whatever, you know. The whole culture has changed. It has. The, you know, the whole face of hospice has completely changed. 
people are more open to it like you mean even things like you know social media phones computers people look up things now they look up their conditions that was all pre really you know as Betty said like you know our mobile phone was like a big a big box that the the, the handset set into you know Um, and you know we were just short of having to wind it up big huge battery that only lasted a very short space of time and so there was you know nowadays you know patients that any patient we take on that they've they've good for for good and for bad too they've googled their medicine they've googled their condition and they come with all that information information and some of it's not not helpful to them either you know um, but there's a lot more there's a lot more openness now and things like that really so, I'd have I mean, to say that's a good thing in a pre-internet age yeah into the pre-internet age what are the massive changes then that you've seen in the, in the job I think to be honest with yeah. you and and. and Sister Doris always said, I think the very basis of the job is still the same. It's oh, good yeah. symptom control, it's compassionate care, holistic care, and there's no great science to it, to be honest with you. I think it's just the same care. It's just we've a lot more a lot more people now involved in the doing of it. And we were like you know, yeah, Martina and I had done we'd say other courses like massage or whatever mm-hmm. and we were doing uh, complementary therapies with our little bottle of oil. Yeah. In the in our bag, I carried bottles of oil because I did a, a, a massage. So whatever called at you, you yeah. brought to it. Yeah. You know, so you covered complementary or whatever. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, you know the rituals around death and dying, where now you're empowering patients and family. And that is in a particular role. But Martina is right that it 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 did bring. You know, now it has gone a bit more complex. The bases are the same, but with a lot of people having palliative chemotherapy and immunotherapy, yeah. and that has brought its own challenges to us because we're dealing with a, as a palliative point of view, but they're having immunotherapy and treatments alongside so it. alongside so they're not always clear on their prognosis and even though we can see maybe we may think we're clear some of the time but the prognosis can be longer the be- emotion of it all like to the, the going in because I'm sure that some of the, the oh, yeah. patients you meet it's like they'll really connect with you oh yeah mm. I mean even even today like I was off yesterday and just the recent memories you remember more than you know but we that is something we would ha- have you know and you do and we do cry yeah. for them and you know Martina would agree we we you know we're not we've we've got to I suppose what maybe I've learned to um to deal with the emotions and always was an emotional character we both are so I suppose that may help because you might drive away from a house and and have tears and then fix you know have tears after you drive away you know and then go to another but they're all you know and we build another life as well outside yeah. but we are pure palliative care nurses yeah. and that's part of who I am and Martina is I'm not talking mm-hmm. for Martina I am a mother a wife a friend a palliative care nurse and I found a home in St. Francis and a home at home and I have yeah. three homes I'd say for, for yeah. at this stage you know so it's part of who I am and it is part of who I always will be as a palliative care nurse probably what, keeps us, what keeps us going a few things one is I suppose one way we've learned to deal with this is that we do every single thing we can for them while they're alive and that then we're ready to let go when they die and you know so that the sadness of the actual death of losing somebody like that we just say gosh if they've had a peaceful death we feel we've done what we can do and that's that that is 99.9% of the time that'll work in letting go so there's always one that'll just get in a little bit deeper and borrow a little bit deeper and then we would be a huge backup for each other so you you have your core group of friends that you know no matter what you say it's never going to sound stupid it's never going to sound you know god you're too involved because I suppose 
to be a good palliative care nurse too, that you can't be or you can't be majorly involved because you have to there's different parts of your life and if you're if you're going from one patient to another crying that's not any help to anybody when you walk into a house you have to bring you have to bring you know a sense of peace with you you don't be bringing the last house with you when you're finishing the last house you you know you you, you sit in the car and you, you park that one there and you do what you can for them and then you go to the next house and you bring a new a new fresh face to that house and give them 100% but at the end of each visit you know at the end of each patient we look after is that you know you've done everything you can for them but apart from that I suppose one of the biggest things that we've learned probably through losing our own parents and like in, in our lifetime here we've been young we were young we've got married we've had children we've lost our parents we came we had you know we all had our parents and things like that so we've had our own close bereavements in our history of time here you know when you're involved in hospitals like that and you're looking I remember coming back to Sister Mark and saying it is an absolute privilege to have worked in a place where you're allowed to nurse the way you were trained to nurse and not you know you're allowed to give 110% you're allowed to have holistic care you're not kind of or, you know, you're not kind of like the resources aren't being taken from you not to be able to give 100% to the patient. That's, I mean, that has never changed, no matter no matter budgets, new buildings, no matter what. At the core of St. Francis, always been given good quality care and that hasn't changed. It's the sister Bernadette McMahon. And I think it all, I would always put down, you know, what, how do we respect the dignity of every human being, every person coming in? You know, that, for me, is key. You know, if... Um, you know, the patient is not just a patient it is a patient of course but it's it's a, a unique person coming in with lots of worries concerns and also probably a very um, interesting history and story Thanks so very much for listening to this special anniversary programme celebrating the people of St Francis Hospice More information on sfh.ie Thanks to Sister Bernadette McMahon Pat Breslin Anne Langan Joe Fallon, Martina O'Dowd and Betty McDonnell for sharing their stories. And by the way, Ireland's biggest coffee morning is taking place on the 19th of September to support the work of hospices and it's a great way to get involved. Palliative Care Week takes place from September 8th to the 14th. To finish up, St. Francis Hospice CEO Vincent Fagan with a message for the many, many people who help make this place so special. What we would like to do in the hospice as well um, is really thank everybody who has, over the years, you know, run a marathon, done some collections for us, participated in an event, made a donation for your support of the hospice because we couldn't have delivered the service or grown the service without your help and support. And our commitment to the community is that we will continue to deliver the services, we'll continue to develop and expand the services and try and ensure that the people of North Dublin have the best possible palliative care and hospice service.